0: Welcome to part two of my highly instructive conversation with Michael Tafoya, in which he shares his story of transformation from a childhood and early teenage years of experiencing the chronic trauma of living in a violence-filled neighborhood on the southwest side of Chicago to making the fateful decision to, as he put it, become what he feared by picking up the gun, which led to a gang murder for which he served a long prison sentence. Now, Michael works as a victim advocate, responding to the scenes of shootings to help victims and their families deal with the trauma of gun violence. He also works as a restorative justice practitioner. Perhaps the most valuable part of this episode is his explanation of what restorative justice is and how this alternative, victim-centered, problem-solving concept and approach to justice leads to healing harm, rather than causing greater harm, as is commonly the case with our traditional punishment approach to justice in which the interests of victims, communities, and the perpetrators of harm are inadequately considered, much less adequately addressed. As I have said before in this program, it is not being tough on crime to keep doing the same things and expecting different results. At some point, we need to wake up and get smart on crime, starting with the recognition that we need to commit to more problem-solving, informed by listening to the voices of people with lived experience, like Michael Tafoya. We start Part 2 with Michael's description of some ways in which the Education Justice Project of the University of Illinois helped transform him while in prison, to be prepared to face the challenges of re-entry to community life after release from prison, and build a new way of life, and help others do the same. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices
1: that need to be heard. Like with EJP, I learned how to deal with interpersonal conflict. We used to have these grueling discussions and borderline arguments in academic settings for years. And it was really hard for me at first because I wasn't used to that conflict in prison is usually solved one of two ways that's either fighting or just leaving it alone and we ain't friends no more um and to be put in a space where you are able to be passionate about something and have a constructive argument a constructive dialogue have that conflict and be able to come out better for it on the other side and to actually notice when you're wrong it's easy to notice when somebody else is wrong it's another thing to admit when you're wrong and I was able to do that and, and learn how to navigate that. And that did prepare me for out here. And when it comes to the Michael, part- I, just, I just have to wonder. Yes. If everyone, if everyone
0: listening and everyone in our communities were to go through a program like that and develop those skills, what a different world we would live in. Yeah. Socially, politically,
1: in our families. Yeah. No, it would be completely different when you could learn how to disagree in a healthy way or even bend your thinking and open your mind. To realize something else it's called education <laughs> if you're a willing participant, yes if you're a willing participant um yeah, but w- when it comes to the greater aspect of reentry um, and that's where idlc really fails is or struggles with reentry starts since the first day you get into prison and it's combating not only your past but your present in order to hit it in a healthy way when you get out um so when I was released in 2018, I went to my brother's house, um, the same one that was beaten up, um, the same one that had told me about my parents. I went to him and his wife, who was the same girlfriend they had when he got beat up and she got slapped, and their two children. As beautiful as this sounds, I did not know them. I really didn't have a relationship with my brother for the last 17 years of my time incarcerated. I don't know why, but we just didn't. And I get to their home and everything, and it was so beautiful seeing my niece for the first time, seeing my brother for the first time, then when I seen my nephew, and then when I seen my sister-in-law. But these are people that I don't know and that don't know me. The struggle with this became where they still thought I was the 18-year-old kid that went in. They couldn't acknowledge the man that I was and how intelligent I was. I remember they used to, ty- they used to try to temper my expectations of what I was going to be able to do out here. Um, I kept telling, oh, I'm going to do this, that, the other. I'm going to help people on this side. Like, oh, you know that sounds good, but oh, you know. Then when I went, um, they're trying to be the voice of reason. Yes, the realists. Um, so my first job and my movement was screwed up. Now they changed parole the way it was. By the time when you would get out on house arrest, they would give you movement only three days of the week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and the movement would be something like ten to two.
0: You're actually still serving prison time on paper, but you're not in behind bars, you're actually, it's a form of home confinement.
1: Yeah. And I got this band around my ankle that reminds me that I'm on house rest. Mm-hmm. Um, the first couple of weeks out, I didn't have movement. They didn't have my parole officer to come out and see me. They were on vacation. They tried correcting the error with another parole officer who turned around and they went on vacation. So then they sent some other parole officer that had nothing to do with me. Um, she freaks out my whole family by saying that I'm not supposed to be in a house with my niece that's 12 years old because i have a sex crime and i'm like no i have a murder that's classified as violence against youth because i was 18 and my victim was 17 and that became a whole nother thing and my family freaked out and they're ready to ship off my niece with a grandmother and i had to finally yell at them and told them look if anyone's leaving this house it's going to be me it's not going to be her and if you guys say something else i'm going to cut my band right now and just run down the street And that calmed everybody down in the house. And then finally I got my parole officer and he explained that, no, I was okay. And everything was clear for me to stay. I wasn't a sex offender. I had violence against youth. And all right, that calmed down that storm. But then came the aspect of me trying to get a job with this limited movement. And I finally had a talk to the 1-800 number and to the supervisor of my parole officer. And I told him, look, I really don't understand how I'm supposed to get this to work. Like, what do you mean you got moving? I'm like, yeah. So you're telling me I should go and try to get a job. And this person tells me, you know what? We love your resume. Um, we would like to interview you. Come Monday at 9 in the morning. I'm going to be like, yeah, okay, but wait. Um, I know I'm not supposed to tell you, but I kind of got to tell you because my movement starts at 10. Um, so could we either move it up later in the day? Or can you call my parole officer and let them know that I have an interview scheduled for Monday at nine so they know that I'm not lying and they could change my time around so I could be here at nine in the morning? Like who the hell's going to hire me? Like who the heck's going to hire me? It's not realistic outside of me trying to go work at a Dollar Tree. Like, I mean, they might not even want to hire me because of that. So finally they fixed my movement. I was able to get a job at a temp agency. I was doing sanitation in a bakery. Um, and then I got the opportunity to have an internship at Uh, Adler University, Institute of Public Safety and Social Justice, I did that.
0: Adler University is a private university in downtown Chicago. Yes. And well-respected and known for the, uh, particularly, at least what I identify it with, is things, areas of expertise like social psychology
1: and things of that sort. Yes. Yeah, there are a school of psychology. Um, Yeah, so I, I was able to get that opportunity. Um, and I was looking into, uh, different registries with a focus on sex offender registry. Um, so that's why I did most of my time there. Um, do them. I was able to attend a lot of conversations like the one where I met you. Um, yeah, we, we met there. Yeah. And I also, uh, got the opportunity to interview, to be a high risk case manager for precious blood ministry of reconciliation and back of the yards. And I interviewed for them at another organization. Um, and I ended up taking that job and I did that for two and a half years. Uh, so to let what, pe- did,
0: what did that involve?
1: Yeah, to I let mean, everyone know what that entails. So Back of the Yards is one of the most violent communities in Chicago right now. Say that oh. slowly so everybody that's not familiar
0: with it knows what you're talking about.
1: The Back of the Yards is one of the most violent communities in Chicago. Um, you can look at the numbers. It's extremely violent. There are people being shot there every day. Um, there are people that are being killed there every week. Um, what are the yards? The back of the yards?
0: The yards. Back of the yards. Yeah. What are the yards?
1: Oh, The yards refers to uh, all the like, plants that they got there where people work at all the lumber yards and everything else. They have uh, meat packing plants and different things of that nature. Um, yeah. So it, 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 that community is very rough. Um, so when I became a high-risk case manager, I had 10 gangs plus clicks um, on my caseload. In order to be considered high risk by the criteria of the grant you had to be just involved meaning that you had either a a case that you already pled guilty or found guilty of or you currently have a case um, pending against you. Um, You had to be known for all the raw reasons. you had to have status in the gang or clique that you were in. A clique
0: being a gang-like organization just not as formally structured.
1: Uh, It's like a, a, a fraction of the gang so there's certain gangs that have broken off into fractions So, yeah, that's what the the click is, um, that they usually don't act as one. So, sometimes they're even fighting amongst themselves. And by fighting, I mean killing. Um, And you had to be an active and well-known shooter. So, you can imagine what my caseload was. You know, what a lot of people refer to as worst of the worst, that's what my caseload was. Um, Now, you would have qualified, wouldn't you? Yes. When you were younger, before you
0: went to prison. Yes.
1: And... Given my life experience of my time in the street, of the community I grew up in, of my time in prison, um, I knew how to talk to these individuals. I didn't have to show up and be like, oh, I got arrested for murder and use that. No, hardly, one, any, hardly anyone in my caseload ever found out that I had a past. And not everyone at pressed blood even knew that I had been incarcerated in my past. That I didn't need that. You know, that wasn't like my badge that I had to flash at people to know, hey, I'm validated. No, it's just the way that I know how to speak to people and what I what I learned through the trauma-informed care spaces. And precious blood, I learned how to become a restorative practitioner. What is that? A restorative practitioner. So restorative justice is a different form of justice um, than we know. Right now, the system of justice that we know is that you get charged for a crime. Um, if you get found guilty, oftentimes you get put away for a while, and then you come back.
0: It's the punishment paradigm that we most people think of
1: yes you do the crime you do the time you're arrested by people that are not from your community um, and charged by them Um, you're held accountable by people that are not from your community and they determine a good outcome that doesn't involve the community and
0: rarely unless it's perhaps at the sentencing hearing because they're in the audience or maybe even testified do you have any direct interaction or contact at all with the victims of your crimes
1: yeah, and their say-so really has no bearing in anything. Whether they've forgiven you or whether they want you to do 100 years, like it doesn't have any say-so. Like the state's attorney and the judge already decides what you're going to do, period. So it, it's like it, it it removes the the victim and minimizes them and takes them completely out the picture even though they're allowed to put in a statement. So it's a punishment paradigm. It's yes. not
0: a victim-based paradigm paradigm. It's not a problem-solving paradigm. It's none of those things. It's the current criminal justice system or the typical criminal justice system is the punishment paradigm. What you're talking about with restorative justice is both victim-oriented and perpetrator-oriented and problem-solving oriented That try to somehow heal that which is in everybody's life, including the community life that has been ripped asunder
1: by crime. Am I right? Yeah. So restorative justice is about community. It's about relationships. It's about creating community, um, protecting it, preserving it, healing it, supporting it. So when a community member does bad, what is a healthy way to hold them accountable An expulsion is an option, but it's oftentimes the last one because they view every member of the community as valuable as the next. So when you have that mindset, it changes everything. Because when your son does harm, when your brother does harm, when your cousin does harm, when your neighbor does harm, you don't want him to be lined up in front of a firing squad. You don't want him to be thrown in a pit for 20, 30 years. You want to be like, how can we help them, right? So when there's a problem, yeah, they hold the perpetrator accountable, but in a healthy way, and they do have to be accountable when any harm is committed. But the most important aspect of that is the community relationship. Because once you have a community relationship, it's not that often that a member is going to go and do something bad.
0: You know, I was looking at an article just recently that was talking about these relationships as being one of the key factors and potentially the key factor in making the difference in whether people, when they get
1: out of prison, go through this cycle and return to prison. Yeah. So with restorative justice, you learn how to acknowledge every human being. Like one of the things that like the go-to tool in restorative justice are circles. So in a circle, and you can have them for anything, for conflict resolution, to celebrate, to mourn a check-in, but That's what becomes important is checking in on people, right? Just like how if you're living with your mother, you would check up on her in the morning. You're living with your baby, you would check up on them in the morning. As a community, you check in with each other all the time and see, you take the temperature to understand what's going on in everybody's lives and who they bring with them today. And if there's a struggle, we address it as a community. So tell us about what these circles are, who's in them, who organizes it, what happens in them. So a restorative justice circle is carried out by any restorative practitioner. Um, now, the, probably the most unique ones are the conflict circles where you have some harm that took place. And the goal is to bring the perpetrator and the victim in the same space to discuss what happened. And in a perfect circle, the um, perpetrator of harm will admit their fault. And they will explain why they did what they did and what was going on and what's going on in their life circumstances if that contributed. The victim will explain what happened to them and what's been impacted with them since. And then together as a community, we would decide what the outcome of this should be. How can the perpetrator make things right if they could be made right? And oftentimes it leads to something really powerful and beautiful. There's one story that the first story that I ever heard was when I started Precious Blood where a cop had his home broken into. Um, They found out who the youth was. Um, They got the cop not to press charges and sit in circle with him. Um, They sat in circle and the cop came with a support person. The youth came with a support person and they had the mediators that were holding the circle. They went around and they talked. The cop talked about what happened to him. And what he said was, yeah, my house got broken into and the laptops got stolen, but that's not what got stolen from me. That's not what matters. What got stolen from me was my child's sense of safety because he doesn't feel safe in my home. That's what the perpetrator took from the cop. That's what's still hurting the cop. The sanctity of the home was violated. And he didn't know how to give that back to his son, a child. He was about five or six years old. His son didn't feel safe at home. The youth heard this, and it impacted him in such a way that he never thought about it. He was only thinking about getting something for money. He was able to find a laptop. So then the youth talks about his circumstances and why he did it. Obviously, he didn't ha- he didn't come from a good home. Um, he was using drugs. He needed some money. So he went, and he was able to find a laptop in the house. He broke in and stole the laptop and sold it for money. And he had dropped out of school and everything. So when they came to how to make things right, how to heal the harm, The cop wanted two things from that youth. One was that he wanted him to go back to school and graduate high school. The other thing is that he wanted him to play basketball with him on Saturdays. In what world does a cop want someone who caused harm to go back to school and go play basketball with him or any parent? Could we imagine our father, somebody broke into a house, stole from us, and our father's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go sit down with this individual. And then they come back, oh, what happened, dad? Oh, yeah, he's going to go back to school and I'm going to play basketball with him on Saturday." You'd be like, what the? It's not normal. Well, think about what I told you about my uh, co-host, Leonard
0: Joyner. I was the prosecutor in the case for which he went to prison. Now, mind you, um, just because of the kind of people we are, to us, our friendship is natural. It's genuine. To most people, they're saying, this, is, this is just boggles our mind. This just doesn't happen. Well, why not? It should happen. I mean, I worked for the Department of Justice. What is justice? This is what I'm. T- this is what I'm talking about. To some people, justice means punishment. And even if the victims don't want the person to be punished, no justice demands it. As if justice is is some person or entity apart from things, some, some appetite that has to be satisfied, apart from the interests of a victim, apart from the interest of the, uh, the taxpayers that are paying for this, apart from the, anyone's interest, somehow justice has to be satisfied. Well, justice isn't some third party in this process. Justice is something that is inside us, this, this desire for there to be somehow some, some satisfaction of the harm. Well, one way to do it is through retribution and somehow that's not even satisfying to the people who are, or the the people who have experienced the harm. But somehow this, there has to be this reconciliation. Justice really in its fuller sense means healing, setting things right. That's what justice is setting things right. And restorative justice is one of the ways that at least, for whatever its difficulties may be, is aimed at that and has been fairly successful in many instances as he, at healing the, the person who's been harmed, the person who caused the harm, reconciling that relationship, and at the same time, healing the community which has also been harmed. Well, this is a win-win-win, win-win-win, all the way around when it can happen. And so the need for facilitators like you, the mediators, the, the concept of restorative justice is really important. Now, there are parameters, of course, which is if this doesn't happen, if somebody is completely resistant to them, because this process of violentization is not just... Let's all sit around in a circle and sing kumbaya, and somehow violent people cease to be violent people. But even with people who are, have, where the harm has been violent harm, one of the problems that leads to this, and you are your a classic example, is lack of empathy. Lack of the ability to put, for the perpetrator of the harm, to put himself or herself in the shoes of the person who is being harmed. What did you say you did? What was your reaction when you shot and killed a man and shot and wounded the other? I laughed. Lack of empathy. And yet if you were to talk to them and hear, listen to them, suppose you had that opportunity, and maybe at some point in the eternities that opportunity will happen. I don't know. Without getting into that, uh, if you, if you are able to just anticipate, which is what empathy is, you don't feel sympathy for people who have been harmed after the fact. You avoid doing them harm because you can anticipate what the consequences will be to them and to others if you commit the harm, the harmful act. That's what empathy is. That's what's being developed. That's what's being nurtured in the people who perpetrate harm by these this process these circles the restorative justice that you're talking about empathy prevents crime lack of empathy leads to crime
1: and that's why the the communal piece is so important developing community had me and my victim been in community had we known each other had we cared about each other had our families known each other this would have never been an outcome But being that we're such a fragmented society and we're all about institutions and we're all about separating and punishing, you have a lack of of those connections of that community. The justice system is that. Justice is a system that was designed to do exactly what it's doing. So when you talk about restorative justice, that's a different design. That's his intention is for an outcome of a, a healthy outcome. It's a a different concept of what is justice. Yeah, so I think that that's the thing that people have to wrap their mind mind around, is what type of system do they want in place? What type of outcome do they want in place? So now, like I said, me learning about restorative practices at Precious Blood, me being trauma-informed already, I was able to connect with all my participants. I was able to lead trauma and restorative circles at Precious Blood with youth as young as eight years old. We were able to talk about trauma and learn the language of trauma. And you've seen the impact that it had on people's lives. One of the greatest things that I was able to accomplish as a high-risk case manager was that I had almost my whole caseload in therapy at one point or another. To have people who are directly involved in the street, in the gang life, running around with guns in therapy is something that's not imaginable and that most people probably would have said was not possible. What kind of therapy? Uh, they were sitting down with behavioral therapists and just starting to understand their emotions and what was going on in their life.
0: There is an organization, a state-funded organization, the Sentencing Policy Advisory Council, or commission. I can't remember now which it is, uh, SPAC, S-P-A-C, that as part of their, their mission is to find out what works and what doesn't work in our criminal justice system. And when it comes to looking at from a cost-benefit point of view, conducting cost-benefit analysis of what works and what doesn't work in the prison system in Illinois, one of, if not the most cost-effective tools in the toolkit is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is... I'm going to simplify here, getting your head straight so that you can straighten out your lives. You have to get your head straight before you can go straight. And it takes people, cognitive behavioral therapy, I'm sure is involved. Eddie Bocanegra talks about the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy as being one of the tools used uh, in the programs that he's been involved in very successfully and intervening in people who are most at risk of being shot, who also, huh, not coincidentally, turn out to be the ones that are most at risk of shooting people. And so by intervening through the program that he and others like him are leading, helping people change the way they think, another form of education, they change behavior punishment was not involved, other than the punishment, the natural punishment that comes with confronting the consequences of one's behavior. In your family, you've talked about that, the impact that had on you and how it turned you around when you saw that. This is part of the change of thinking that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. But it has to be facilitated it isn't something that just happens magically like flipping on a light switch
1: so this is your work now and with the eddie Bocanegra piece just like with precious blood is that you you need an entity that represents community when people got involved with ready just like when people get involved with precious blood and all these other restorative uh, justice hubs and all these trauma-informed care organizations they get exposed to something that's different than their community. They get exposed to these safe havens with these people who all they do is love on them and treat them like their children, like their family. So now when it comes to accountability, they know that they, they risk losing that entity. And they don't want that. They don't want to be kicked out of ready. They don't want to be kicked out of precious blood. They don't want to be kicked out of none of these organizations. And But that's what they risk when they don't. Accept accountability and the restorative piece. And that, that I want people to understand accountability is one of the cornerstones. Restorative justice does not work without a perpetrator understanding that they committed harm and what type of harm they committed and that they're going to be held accountable to that and that they're going to have to repair that in some form or fashion. And that's an important piece, the accountability piece, not just empathy, but accountability. Yeah, because people think that it's just, oh, we just keep loving on them no matter what. No, yes, we love on them no matter what, but with a lack of accountability, if they perpetrate harm, we love on them from a distance with a little less. And people miss that love and people want to come back in. And if, if anyone ever gets a chance to go into these organizations and see what I'm talking about in real time, they will notice these kids get loved on in a much beautiful way, as well as men and women in the community. Um, yeah, so so that's just something that I want people to keep in mind that it's not all fine and dandy. You know, all roses, all peachy, no matter what. No, there's accountability piece with that. That's really, really important. But the reason it's important is because of the relationship that's evolved with that. So it, w- my time there as a high-risk case manager, that's what I did is I engaged with these individuals. Now, since then, I've transitioned. i moved on and I've become a victim advocate, which is uh, something a little different. And it's harder in a lot of sense. Um, the relationships are all temporary now, but I'm responding to attempt murders and homicides in real time. I respond to the scene, I respond to the hospital, and then I support the victims if they're still alive, if not just the survivors, the families, um, for the next coming weeks and months in immediate needs and long-term needs. Um, and that could be anything from funeral arrangements to getting to therapy, food pantries, finding employment, relocation, and so on and so on. Um, and it's difficult. It's really difficult because I'm meeting people in the worst moment of their lives. In the worst moment of their lives. They saw their life flash before the eyes when they almost got killed, or I'm just talking to a mother who just lost her son, which is the most horrific thing that a parent could ever experience. And thanks to my trauma-informed background, I'm able to deescalate them And I'm able to support them in a healthy way um, through that period. Um, I oftentimes talk to them about the grief process and that it is a process um, and what life looks like afterwards. And when it comes to that, I just tell them that they have to flip the switch in their head and they're going to have to figure out how to do it, where every time they think of their baby or their loved one as being gone and dead, that they could think of the gift instead the joy, the beauty, the knowledge, their presence, and carry that on in their family, and let that inspire them to be there for others in a healthier way. And it, it, it's helped them out quite a bit, you know, for the most part. Um, alongside this, for the last four years that I've been out, I've also become a trauma-informed restorative facilitator, trainer, presenter, and consultant. Um, I've done various entities from nonprofit organizations to the Chicago police department, to different universities for students or professors, um, to even at your local public library for regular community folk. Um, and I've been very, very blessed in that. And I'm, I'm surprised that people have taken to me and people seek me out. And just last week, you know, um, on Friday. I sat in my car after getting done with a three-day training for a community nonprofit in Cicero, Illinois. And I can't imagine that this is my life. Like, sometimes I can't believe it. I went from a kid who had all the potential in the world to a kid who was just overwhelmed with violence to a kid who was consumed by violence to a kid who was sitting lost in a prison cell to a young man that could start seeing his worth and helping others in prison to being wide eyed four years ago, coming out of prison, not knowing what I was going to do with all this knowledge to being to work. Oh, wow. People seek me for my time, my intellect. Why, you know, but I, obviously I know why It's just, it's surreal. It's really, really surreal.
0: This is why I have viewed you as someone whose story needs to be told and whose perspective needs to be shared and heard because you've experienced the whole spectrum that we've been talking about and and will continue to talk about in this program. One of the points you made is what outcomes do we want? What outcomes do we seek when it in, in dealing with crime, preventing crime, dealing with crime when it occurs, the people who are involved, that'd be the perpetrators of the harm and the people who suffer the harm themselves and the community, what outcomes do we seek? You've illustrated your part of that because none of these things would have happened, these positive outcomes without you making a decision that started with being confronted by your brother with the impact of your criminal behavior on your family, on your loved ones, people you cared about. And you made a decision to, no excuses, just take the consequences but turn a corner. I mean, to plain go from being under the influence of drugs or alcohol every day, all day, just that decision to just quitting, well, that's remarkable. Most people think it takes some time and help and all of that. You did that because of the depth of your commitment to changing, a change of life, a change of perspective, a change of attitude, a change of behavior. That puts you on a different trajectory. I've got to believe that God took that and led you. I can see you smile. I know you're thinking the same thing. I mean, how do, how do these things happen? Well, the hand of God seems to me to be pretty evident, if I can go there. I think it's part of the reality of life, that God is real and does influence things, that people aren't alone, and that uh, that there is intervention from a higher power that can help in achieving positive outcomes. But even if you don't accept that, people who are listening, even if they don't accept that, you still had resources available to you in the prison system that you experienced that most people in the prison system don't experience that weren't available to them educational opportunities that you avail yourself of. But again, you're the one who is driving yourself toward those to take advantage of them, whether it be reading the books, getting the GED, uh, going into the programs, but having them available. And the, the program that the University of Illinois, uh, the Educational Justice Program, this, and, the, and the Danville Correctional Center, with uh, the, thing, the experience that you had there, the things that you learned there, the course that it set you on, uh, your family when you got out, people who gave you the opportunities, Adler University, uh, Precious Blood, uh, all of these, all of these things, that lead to an outcome that we would hope would happen in every time, in every instance in which there is violence or or other other forms of crime, and that, in fact, would lead to, you know, as we, as we learn to achieve outcomes in these extreme cases, and you are an extreme case, uh, then, boy, why don't we apply those same lessons at the front end to prevent these things from happening? If we can heal from even the murder by someone who laughed at the act, if we can heal from that, if you can heal from that, and get beyond it, then those same things can prevent those things from happening.
1: Yeah. the The one thing I want to highlight, or actually two things, real quick, is um, if you look at the Education Justice Project in Danville from the University of Urbana-Champaign, uh, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, look at their numbers. How many people have gone to that program? How many people have been released? And how many of them are living out here very successful lives? Most of us that were released are giving back in some form or fashion. Um, we're either working you know, with nonprofits or government entities to help out, or there are people that just have regular nine to fives that in their spare time, they give back. Um, like we have a barber that cuts hair in the community during events, like that's his way of giving back, but everybody's tied into community and mostly everyone that has gone through that program is out here succeeding in a healthy way, which I don't think could go, you know, by the wayside. The other thing, and I think it's the more telling one for all the listeners and anyone else who wants to just simplify this whole conversation of being restorative, of being trauma-informed, of reimagining the 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 justice system and everything else, you could just grab two pieces of paper. Look at successful America, which is majority white, um, making above, you know, (laughs) minimum wage, you know, Um, and jot down their life supports from birth until they're in their 30s. Then turn around, grab the most impoverished neighborhoods, put them on paper, write down their supports from birth to the age 30. And the most telling sign will be that the first one has a lot of love, a lot of expectation, a lot of really good schools, a lot of really good counselors, a lot of really good supports all the way through with an expected outcome. And the impoverished one has an expected outcome. But it doesn't have all those supports. It's going to show you a lot of lack of supports.
0: Well, in the expected outcome,
1: maybe... maybe Prisoner of the grave? Yeah, prisoner of the grave. And that's what we need to do. We need to support that population. We need to inject love, we need to inject systems, we need to inject money, opportunity, understanding a- and healing.
0: Michael, you could have been me. I mean, in terms of career uh, potential and, and, uh, and aptitude, you could have been the person who went to law school, became a lawyer, was able to choose uh, what direction to go, whether it be law or something else, But you see, my parents and I expected that I'd be going to college, I'd be doing all these things. Now, what if your expectation is in your community and the circumstances you live in and is limited by just hoping that you're going to live through the day? You're not thinking about avoiding criminal activity because that might lead it prevents you from going to law school or medical school or business school or anything like that you're not you're not thinking about any of those things
1: trauma affects the concept of future it disrupts your level of self-worth your understanding of yourself um, the saddest thing i learned in my time my precious blood it used to perplex me when i first started there that these youth would celebrate their 18th birthday and their 21st birthday like they just graduated with a doctorate like they just landed their dream job like it would be such a party for them and such a celebration i didn't understand why until i finally did they made it yes when so many of their friends didn't when so many of their friends are in the grave or in prison with a lot of with a lot of time They made it at the age of 18 and at the age of 21. I'm old enough to remember that being 18 and 21 was expected, even though we had gangs and even though I was a part of a gang. Now our youth who are not even in gangs in Chicago and in other cities like this don't expect to be 18 and 21.
0: Well, here's something. There's the flip side of the coin I just said. I said, you could have been me. You could have been, I could have been you. Different circumstances. Are you fundamentally different than me? No. Well, I mean... I, we're human. I, we're human. I think that's important, that people who are listening, who are like me from my background, which is kind of Norman Rockwellish sort of environment that I grew up in, understand that people who grew up like you are like them and they are like you and people like you what the difference is and changes the differences in the outcome are things uh, that it, we experience that you experience that the, the trauma that the the, uh, the violence all of these things and then the ad- adaptations to be able to survive that occupy your time instead of doing your schoolwork, getting ready for uh, going on to, uh, whether it be a trade or, or, or post, uh, you know, high school education, whatever it may be. I mean, what's on the mind of the person in the crime-ridden community versus what's on the mind of the person living in, like me, a Norman Rockwell-ish small town in central Illinois? Well, those are the things that change outcomes. What's remarkable about you is not that you yourself are inherently different, than the other people that you were in prison with. And I, I know from private conversations that we've had, you, you cautioned against that, th- thinking somehow you're aberrational. I mean, you, like me, have had some exceptional opportunities and, and, and have capitalized on those, but we're not so different. We're ordinary people, just have had some extraordinary opportunities and seen some extraordinary things. That's an important part of the message that if we want to change the outcomes, then we need to understand, this is where you started, a point you made right at the beginning. We are all human beings. And people who are treated like a human being tend to become better human beings. People who are treated like they are criminals, expected to always behave, once a criminal, always a criminal, well, they tend to remain criminals because not only does society expect that, they're taught to expect that. I just keep coming back to just really my admiration for the educators from the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign for being able to see something, see beyond that in you, but to you and being able to, see, and people in, in the program and who had that opportunity being able to see it in themselves and in each other and supporting each other in this in this journey and other people that along the way we were, were hired people who had confidence in you who took a chance and they did take a chance considerable chance in hiring you who were you who have perpetrated serious terminal harm being a victim advocate. They took a chance, and yet I can see in you how who better than you would be able to understand this whole process because of what you've been taught about how you got where you got and how you then arrived at where you are today.
1: Yeah, and I want to reiterate what you said just to make it perfectly clear, I am not an anomaly by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I'm not better than anyone. Um, what what I have been able to do in my life since I changed it at the age of 19 and in the four years since I've been out, I understand that people are surprised by it and commend it and all that, and, and I'm grateful for that, I am definitely am. But I'm not the first and I'm definitely not gonna be the last. And if, Imagine if you could give a youth the time, the care, the love that's been given to me in the limited amounts, but give it to them when they're younger, how much greater than me can they be? I learned all this stuff as a man behind bars, you know, and that's why like every space I get in, I always remind them, all the young people like, man, you're smarter than me than I was at your age. You could be way better than me when you get this age, you know, you could be much more accomplished. Um, but yeah, if you give any human being a shot, then they have a, a great opportunity at an amazing uh, outcome. We just have to give people an opportunity.
0: And you illustrate that it takes more than just a good family because you had that. Yes. It takes a community.
1: It takes a village to raise a child.
0: And uh, it takes both. Well, I want to tell you that you have my respect, my deep respect, I would not be here, I would not have driven all the way up here from Springfield, that three-hour drive, and uh, having this conversation with you, if I did not respect you, I respected you when we first met, and I'm serious when I thought, even then, before you've gone on and done other things since then, this is a person, this is a man with a story that needs to be told and a perspective that needs to be shared and heard. So thank you for being on this program.
1: Uh, It's been an honor and a privilege, and likewise to you. um, It's meant a lot uh, for the respect and and gratitude that I've gotten out of you, um, the acknowledgement and everything. It it really does, um, and lets me know that I'm doing the right thing. (laughs) You are. (laughs) we are <laughs> <laughs> yes we definitely are yeah and i appreciate you for this platform um giving the voiceless a voice because of oftentimes we don't get a chance to um speak up and speak out we don't get the platforms for that who wants to hear from a criminal from a murderer from this that or the other but you're able to show that um we're much more than that you know we're much more more than the worst act that we ever per- perpetrated um and we're much more than our past and that we can overcome these things.
0: You know, that means a lot to me, to know that I'm on the right path also. We'll see where this journey takes us. Yes, indeed. Maybe we'll have another conversation down the road. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard.